if you're really doing it right like that, almost the entire narrative that is not external dialogue is going to be internal monologue. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of the kick-ass Vanessa Michael Monroe thrillers. And this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, without whom we would have no show, in which we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. (laughs) (laughs) Taylor, welcome back. It seems like weeks since we've talked. It it has been. (laughs) And and I, I just know from following you on social media and on your Patreon account that some things have happened. And so I want to I want to just quiz you about this, and you can answer or not answer whatever you whatever you feel is appropriate. Um, first, what's the story on the purple hair? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a mid age crisis. So um, <laughs> I've I've want, I love the idea of colored hair. I just love it. And uh, a couple of years ago, I looked into you know how much you know I, I didn't know I okay I don't do anything with my hair. I know this is Dallas. And to say that is almost like saying I walk around with dirty nails or something. But um, I, I, did, I don't know anything about hair. Um, I, when I started turning, getting gray hair, I just go buy a box of, you know, wash out stuff and put it in my hair like every two months, just straight from the grocery store or whatever. So and like I go get my hair cut like once a year and I tell the person, Chop it off and just know that I'm not going to do anything with it except blow dry it. And that's only so it doesn't drip dry. Like I'm not going to like style it or anything. And it has to be cut in a way that it can grow out for six, eight, six to eight months or longer and not make me look like a shaggy dog by the time that it's done. (laughs) So that's like those are my my hair requirements. And so um, I started seeing people walking around with, you know, green streaks or purple hair or just all these amazing colors. And I love color. Color makes me happy. And so I, I started asking around, like, what does it cost to get your hair colored like that? And I thought it was just easy. You just put it in like you do from, from the store, the buy a box and make your hair green or something. And like, Oh God, no. So it turns out that, you know, in order to do it, you've got to bleach your hair. And then there are no permanent colors that are in these like blues, greens, purples, whatever. So then you end up with, it, it's a, it's an ongoing process. And I was just like, Oh man, nah, I'm just not going to do that. But I always wanted to. And so then, um, somebody found out about it and they're like come on we're gonna go get that done we're gonna go get it done so I was like okay fine and um the the salon was having sort of a discount and you know let's purple hair Thursday that kind of thing no but you know (laughs) the bleaching process and they're like it it depends on how long you have to be here and everything and they're like oh it'll probably for your hair it'll probably be quick no no it was not quick and it was not cheap and so when all was said and done they, you know, they bleached the hair and put the color in. It wasn't even that great. It was sort of muted, like, you know, and then on top of it, the, the roots, like maybe an inch from my scalp, it, the color didn't even stick to it. So it's like I have this brassy blonde with no color on it, and I had to go back and get it done, you know, put, have the color put back in again. And the lady was all, like, offended, like somehow, you know, we were, I don't know. It was, it was not a pleasant experience. But 
but it was like all that money was was spent now and it, it seemed like such a waste to me to just go back to having boring brown hair so I did what I always do is I research and 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 I found a color product that came with really good recommendations and seemed to work on people who had darker hair and everything. So I took the plunge and I bought it and together at home, help from extra set of hands, redid the hair all by ourselves and it came out brilliant. Now, it didn't really work very well on the parts of my hair that had since grown out and hadn't ever been bleached, but the parts that had been bleached, it took what was already there and just made it awesome. And in the video that I posted, you can sort of see it, but that doesn't even come close to what it looks like when it's in sunlight. Now, you've got so to get a picture that we can post in the show notes. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of already started to dull and grow out. Um, I'm, I may just color what's left of it before I go to Thriller Fest, do it one more time. And then, because I don't want to like experiment with bleaching my own hair and like totally destroy it right before I go to a conference. Yes, that, that seems <laughs> so I'm in this I'm in this in-between place of, you know, roots. But, you know, so anyway, um, I will try and get a picture maybe of the, the vibrancy of it in the sunlight once I redo it again. All right. For first time listeners, this is not a show about hairstyle or anything <laughs> like that. We are going to get the writing stuff. And we're actually today what we're going to be talking about is a blog post that was written by Ann R. Allen at the end of last year called Stupid Writing Rules, 12 Bad Writing Tips New Writers Give Each Other. And we're going to dig into that, but I still have two more questions for Taylor because it's been so oh long since we've spoken. <laughs> okay, go for it. <laughs> um, there was a picture of you on Facebook, kind of a glamour shot, kind of by the pool, and I'm like, what's with this? What's with, you know, Mrs. I'm always at, I'm always at my desk. I'm always working. And there you are chilling by the pool with your shades on. I know. It was so awesome. Well, you know, it's summer and the kids are out of school and some friends of mine are like, hey, let's get the kids together and, you know, hang out by the pool. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> but it was a fun day. I'm really glad I did it. Are these the same friends that took you to get your hair dyed purple? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, if I, I, that would be awesome if I had friends that were getting me in trouble like that all the time. <laughs> all right. And the last question, something you wrote on Patreon, uh, a, a confidential message to patrons. When are you going to talk about that to people that aren't patrons? Because I'm kind of excited about it. Um, as soon as I can get the all clear that it's I'm not going to get in trouble for preempting or saying something that I shouldn't say. Okay. That's it. If I ask you the question five more ways, will I get the same answer? Yes. I'm not going to be able well, to trick you into giving me the ways. answer? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Then we should, get, we should get this show started. When Steve and I were talking uh, a bit ago, he sent me a link to another author's blog where she lists out these 12 really bad writing tips that new writers give each other. And he's like, oh my God, it would be so awesome if we could talk about this and like kind of get your take on some of these bad pieces of writing advice. And let, let me interrupt here because I, I just blew through this early on. This is Ann R. Allen, A-N-N-E-R-A-L-L-E-N. -L -L -E 
Com. I'll have a link to the blog and to her website. But she is uh, – of authors that do do a lot of blogging on a regular basis, she is one of my absolute favorites. So if you're not reading her blog, you might want to check that out. Anyway, back to you, Taylor. So he sent me this, and I just I, – we're in a hurry, and I looked through it. And I said, oh, my God, those are some awesome bad advice things. That would be really fun. But one of the things I love about this blog and which probably won't come up later – but I, I really feel that it's worth highlighting, is that she talks about the Dunning-Kruger effect. And the Dunning-Kruger effect is like this bee that I have in my bonnet where I'm like, everybody should know about the Dunning-Kruger effect. And it's this, this um, thing, this, this, this uh, mental bias, I guess you could say, subconscious mental bias, it, where it creates an inverse relationship between competency and uh, ignorance in the sense that people who are incompetent at any one thing are usually the least likely to be aware of their own incompetence. And so it creates a situation where the people who are really good at what they do are self-doubting themselves along the way, and people who are really bad at what they, uh, that same thing are completely blind to how bad they are, are at it and can't even see the difference between what they do and what somebody who's really good in that area can do. And the, the most fascinating thing about this effect is that it happens to all of us. It's just it happens in different areas of life. Like for me, it would be in in the writing arena, but someone else could come along in something else. And I might not think like, oh, I'm really good at what they can do, but I have no concept of how actually bad I am at it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what the Dunning-Kruger effect is. And she um, she talks about it on this blog in relation to these stupid writing rules. And, and I love how she says, um, that some of this is this is literally her word. She says some of these quote unquote rules are pretty comical. The opposite of what professionals consider good writing. I have a feeling some frustrated new writer may have made some of this stuff up just to justify bad writing habits. And I'm like, I love this woman. So anyway, that's the intro to these these um, this listicle that she made of of bad writing rules. And as you were talking about the Dunning Kruger effect, I was. Flashing back in my own mind to when I was 17 and 18 years old and knew everything. No one could tell me anything. And I've got a couple of yous living in my house right now. <laughs> <laughs> the, the good thing is that for most of us, when we reach that pinnacle of knowledge, uh, we become less knowledgeable as time goes on to the time you, you reach my age and you realize you just really don't know much of anything. And uh, everything is just a puzzle to you. Yeah, I, and, and, and that's when you realize what they mean by, and in many ways, of youth being wasted on the young. And you're just like, <laughs> damn it, if only I understood that however many years ago. <laughs> All right, I will, I will give the, um, the first stupid writing rule as defined by Ann R. Allen. Uh, number one, don't make your opening scene too dark. And what she says in there is, a writer I met recently started her novel with a pastoral scene with no tension or plot, just a pretty scene with pretty people being happy. Someone she respected as an authority had convinced her to cut out nail-biting a cut out her nail-biting car accident opener and substitute this. So, what is is that good advice or bad advice? Oh my God! I don't make your opening scene too dark. I'm like, who in the world would say that? Like. 
you you want to start with something that draws people in. Uh, and I'm just like, you know, mouth open, tongue roll out. But then that just gets us started here, you know. Um, I, I, I always have to go back to the ca caveat, caveat of genre, though. You know, uh, I'm sure that it may possibly be different for different types of genre expectations. And if somebody's writing a cozy Maybe an opening scene that's too too dark is going to scare away your readers. But generally, but then comes what is quote unquote too dark. So um, I don't know. I just why would you want to start your material off with boring stuff? I just don't get it. I have a, a friend who's a cozy writer, and one of the things that tickles me about her books is, and she writes two different series, but in each of her series, the body drops on the second page, and you know the first page has a big one on it. And so it's really only half a page of text. And the second page, there's a dead body. She just she wastes no time <laughs> in getting to the re the point of the mystery. That's and, awesome. And she's a cozy writer. Yeah. Okay. okay so number number two. Number two. A novel needs a prologue. <sighs> yeah. No. <laughs> um, you know, and and she says here um, it's dated. It's old fashioned. Readers skip them. Publishers cut them. Agents positively hate them. I don't know that that is 100% true. When I wrote The Informationist, I had been reading a lot of Ludlum, although a lot, I need to put that in finger quotes because I never actually read a lot at all. Um, and in the 70s, I guess a lot of thrillers had prologues. And so it was my understanding that a book needed a prologue. And then as I went along and learned more about writing, I learned that prologues were no longer in fashion and blah, blah, blah. And I left it as a prologue. And here's why. It takes place, that that scene takes place four years before the rest of the story. And it's a scene that has nothing to do with the story. And yet the entire story revolves around that scene. You just don't know it until you get way further into the book. And so it's completely separate from the story. And that's probably one of the very few cases that you can actually get away with having a prologue. But the general advice now is don't even call it a prologue, just call it chapter one, <laughs> and then move on with chapter two. And so um, prologues can also be useful in if you're going to have to info dump, make it quick, make it short. Once upon a time in a galaxy far, far, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That's a prologue. So, um, yeah, books do not need a prologue. You generally don't. It, it's not highly looked upon. So it's sort of more like one of those rare circumstances these days. Uh, who gives those pieces of advice of a novel? Need? Where is this coming from? <laughs> well, I read I read a lot of indie fiction. There's a larger percentage of indie books that have prologues than traditionally published books. I'll just say that. But, and, and so I don't find them particularly offensive unless they're too long. Like if, if it's more than two pages, it's like you just lose me and I just put the book aside because I don't want to read 10 pages before I start reading the book. Uh, and I read one like that the other day. It just went on and on and on. And it, I never got to chapter one. I just, I just went back to Amazon and found another book. You know, th yeah, that's really interesting what you say, because 
uh, in the context of this conversation, I can see how prologues typically are used for info dump. And that could be why my agent told me that when she read the book for the first time, she said, this is the best prologue I've ever, written, ever read in my entire life. And it's because it wasn't an info dump. It was an action scene. It mm -hmm. just happened to be an action scene separated from the entire story. If I could do it over, would I call it a prologue still? Maybe. But because it said four years ago in West Central Africa and it gave the, 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 the time and the place, it could have functioned as a chapter one. But it does really work as a prologue, too. So, you know, it, it can be done. Okay, uh, number three, don't put contemporary re references in fiction or your book will seem dated in 10 years. I don't know if that is, like, horrible, horrible advice. I would, like, in, the, in, in this list of bad advice, I would put that sort of, like, at the bottom of the list of bad advice because sometimes it really can date your book. And... My Like my books, for example, I don't specifically deliberately avoid contemporary references, but I do everything I can possible not to age and date things. Um, I don't ever say 1992, for example. I'll say four years ago. Or I won't say a year. I'll say a person's age at the time specifically to not date the story and try and keep it contemporary. And some books, if you if you're using contemporary references, they will become that's like almost it can become a cult classic in the sense that it's a, a nostalgia type thing for that particular era down the road. So there are pros and cons and yeah. Well, and let me throw out another example that I saw, and this this would be, I, and I, I don't completely buy into this as, as horrible advice either, but I was reading a book the other day, and in the indie world, you're able to relaunch your books. You can do a new cover. You can get a new uh, Amazon ASIN number. I think I, that's the right term, and it looks like a new book, and so I got this book by an author that I've read a lot from and started reading it, and about 40 pages in... He started mentioning technology that was like 15 years old. So I'm like, yeah. oh, okay. And and I, I it took me out of the story because I was in current day reading the story, thinking that everything was happening in current day. And then this happened, and I had to go back and look at the copyright date. And the copyright date was current, but it was obviously something that, something that had been written a long time ago. And probably it would have been a good idea for this particular book to have gone in and just updated those few things. It yeah, wasn't a lot, yeah. but it, you know, there, it was uh, some piece of technology that just kept being used. Um, like Gordon Gecko's phone, for example, that's not what it was, but if someone pulls out a brick phone, you've got a pretty good idea. It's not in the nineties or the two thousands. Right. Yeah. But, at, and part of the problem might be because it was all spruced up. So the cover looked all new and everything. Yes. So that's what set your expectations. Cause I remember I've read, um, Oh, I forget the author's name. He's huge and has huge series. He writes the Joe Pike books. Um, and I read one of his standalones. And I, when I picked it up, I had no idea that it was a standalone or of much of anything that he had read. And in that book, telephones, like uh, public phones, you know, mm -hmm. the kinds that used, yeah. played a, a big role in, in the story. And, you know, you just don't see those anymore. They don't exist anymore. Now, everybody has a cell phone. 
And so, but it never bothered me reading it because it didn't feel like, oh my God, this book is old. It just, I was aware that it was because that couldn't happen the way now, the way that it would have then. But it's not like the, it's not like it was this tech heavy book where, you know, it's just dumb because it's all old, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So those, some of those things you almost can't even predict, you know, when you, when you're, you can sort of see where technology is going and you can write to it, but even then it'll, even then it's moving so fast, it'll be dated five years later, you know? So Um, that author you're talking about is Robert Crace. And you, 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 you tell us a little something about yourself when you refer to his, his books as the Joe Pike books rather than the Elvis Cole books. But that's because you write the Vanessa Michael Monroe books. You take the most violent character <laughs> in Robert Crace's books and you say the Joe Pike books. Well, it's also because I've only ever read one of his Joe Pike, Elvis Cole stories. Okay. Right. And Joe Pike was the character. Elvis was just sort of the side character. Okay. Yeah, so. he does. There is a Joe Pike wing of the series. But it, it started as Elvis Cole. So oh, I, I see. I don't know. I I don't know anything. <laughs> I'm just a dumb purple-haired person <laughs> <laughs> who didn't spend her childhood reading crime fiction the way some of us did. All right. Let's number five. Uh, novels cannot contain contractions. What? Who? <laughs> who in their right? What? <laughs> I got. Say to that, what? <laughs> um, yes, yeah, and and I I suspect our there are our audience is is exactly the same way. And every so often you'll read a lot of dialogue where there are no contractions, and you'll just think to yourself, "Has this guy never listened to anyone speak before?" There's only one instance where I'm really careful about not using contractions and that's when i have a non-native speaker speaking english because contractions are sort of a um to my ear they're sort of a a byproduct of speaking quickly Uh, when you're very fluent in a language and it just kind of flows off the tongue the contractions follow naturally when somebody doesn't speak English as a first language, their syntax is often very stilted, not even just with the contractions, but in the order in which the words come. And you can almost sometimes tell from where a person comes by the syntax that they use because they're following the syntax of their native tongue and translating that directly into the new language. So in that case, no contractions. But other than that, what? <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next one is, is one that we've talked about before. It was one of Elmore Leonard's rules for writing. But this just comes up more and more often now. I, I saw um, a, a discussion of this on Facebook the other day, and the people taking the opposite approach of what I'm about to say, um, you know, it, believe very strongly that what they're doing is correct. Um, and this is said, in quotes, is boring. Use more energetic dialogue tags like exclaimed, growled, and ejaculated. Yeah, that last one's exactly how I feel about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Okay. And I, I thought what Ann wrote in here is kind of funny. And I'm going to be interviewing Ann on the Author Biz here sometime in the fall. She's got a new oh, book coming fun. out uh, about blogging for authors. And I'm really excited because nobody does it better than, than her. There are only a couple of people that do it really well, and, and she's one of them. Um, so I'm excited about that. But uh, what Ann says is whoever thought this one up must have read so many Harder, Hardy Boys books growing up that they became imprinted on their brains forever. They're also treading dangerously close to Tom Swift territory. She says Tom Swifty. I don't know yes. what that means. Well, Tom Swift was a series of books, so I'm assuming it's that's what she means by Tom Swifty. Okay. Yeah, clueless purple here. Um, I just, I, I don't. That's I also don't an age thing. You have to be a certain age to know who Tom Swift is. So don't, oh, don't, okay. don't be too hard on yourself. Uh, I am. Um, I guess the people who are saying set is boring, you know, use more energetic and making lists of like hundreds of different alternatives to set or whatever. They haven't. They're probably authors who do a lot of telling instead of showing in their work. And that I'm sure they probably have a really great audience and, you know, Dunning-Kruger and all that are completely oblivious to that they're doing anything that's not good writing. Because if you're selling books and you're doing it this way, it must work. But if you're really looking to, to show a story and not just tell a story, then said is invisible and that's the way it should be all right the next one is kind of similar in that it's it's completely obvious to most of us but obviously not to everyone this one says head hopping is necessary if you have more than one character in a scene and you know we've talked about that specific subject on this show before mm -hmm. in depth um and I, I, I'm having a little bit of a flashback to when we did the Michelle material, mm -hmm. the Michelle. And the whole reason that we got that material to begin with is the person who sent it in said, I'm having a problem with point of view. And I don't really know how to do this particular uh, segment without moving from one person's head to the other because this person knows something that the other person doesn't know and the reader needs to know it. And so there and elsewhere, I've it, it just comes back to inexperience. The people say head hopping is necessary. Well, th those people don't have the experience and the skill of how to find other ways to get that same material onto the page. And it has to do with craft and learning the craft and how to tell a story and how to structure a story so that the reader gets the same, same information in a way that doesn't require hopping hits. All right, number eight. And before I get to it, I, I'm, I'm going to mention that I'm reading a series of books right now. I find the books enjoyable. I find the stories enjoyable. It's a, it's a private investigator series. And I mean, I really like it, but every single time the character, well, not every single time, but I don't know, once or I'm twice. I'm smiling because I know what you're talking about. Listeners are probably like, what? Yeah, once or, <laughs> once or twice a page, sometimes more often, the internal dialogue is in italics. And it just, every so often I think that's fine, but if it's just like 
over and over and over again. It just drives me to distraction, and it's I'm barely hanging in there on this. And I, it's one of those things where you buy six books for three dollars, and I'm kind of enjoying it. So I'm, I'm continuing on. The storytelling is good. Everything else about it is good, except this one thing. And I'm curious to see if he does it further on as we get into books five and six to see if he's still doing it. This particular author. Here's an interesting thing, though, is that. If you are really, if you are really in the head of your character, like, and we're with the character and we're seeing the story through their eyes and we're quote unquote being Michelle. And if you're a new listener and you have no idea what I'm talking about, just go look through our list and and it'll be there right in the title of the show, being Michelle. Um, If you're really doing it right like that, almost the entire narrative that is not external dialogue is going to be internal monologue because we're through the eye, like, except for she said, I mean, she looked or she turned or she went or whatever, except for those types of um, actual narrative, almost everything, if you really look at it, is the character's thoughts. It's internal monologue. And that's... it could be half your page would be in italics if you were doing it that way. Uh, what Anne says in this in this little section is italics are on their way out. I've seen agents. What at the top she says I've seen this in guidelines from small publishers, where small pub- publishers are actually asking their authors to put that in. So it's not. I mean, there are people doing it because they've been told to do it that way by people in power. But Anne says further down that italics are on their way out. She's seen agents say in their guidelines that they won't read anything that's italicized. And she speculates that it's because italics are harder to read and cause havoc with electronic formatting, especially for ebooks. I don't, I don't know whether – I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, I don't have any problem reading it on ebooks, and that's pretty much the only way I read. I, I use italics – I like I'm working some material right now that uses a lot of italics and the way that I use them is not internal monologue. It's when I'm repeating back something that has been specifically said out loud prior external dialogue, but it's in the character's head to separate that from the otherwise running pattern of internal monologue. So that instead of saying she thought back on X, Y, Z when so-and-so said ABC, you just put the ABC there and put in italics and we know we're, we're with you and you just save yourself so much um, words and, and you just keep it moving, keep it punching. All right. The, the next one, never use sentence fragments. All characters must speak and think in perfect English. And this, this, is, this is interesting because a lot of times if you send material out to a beta reader, they will correct the grammar of your dialogue and in, in the way that, you know, if it would make it perfect English and you just want to bang your head on the desk and say, you know, this is like someone talking and we don't actually talk like that. There's two types of sentence fragments, though. There's sentence fragments that's in actual spoken dialogue, and there's sentence fragments that's part of the narrative. And a lot of times, in my experience, people will have no issue with the spoken fragments, but copy editors and sometimes even editors will raise a howl over the sentence fragments in the narrative. And I use a lot of them. 
especially when we start moving into action and I'm slowing down the, the pace, I'm standing it to a crawl so that we can see every movement just beat by beat by beat. At that point, I throw away all grammar and I'm just, it's sentence fragment, sentence fragment, sentence fragment, because we're crawling deeper and deeper into the character's head in that inner monologue and not in italics. And so um, there have been a few times where my editors have said, look, sentence fragments, when you're doing that, is great. But can we just limit it to that and not do it in the rest of the narrative? Because it's a bit much. Like, okay, you can start putting in all the useless words that English forces us to use <laughs> to, keep, to keep it grammatical. So there's, um, I guess what I'm saying is the never use is, oh my God, are you kidding me? But then I'm the of the I go way overboard and I'm like let's use them everywhere. <laughs> All right, this next one, I'm going to tell a quick story before I get to it. I use the word was a lot when I'm writing a first draft, and so I go in and I'll do like a, a word count on the word was, and I will be stunned by the number of copies. And then I thought, I wonder how Taylor does it. So because I occasionally see Word documents that she's writing, I took one and did the same count and, and got the number of wases per page and compared yours to mine. And mine was like astronomical higher than yours. And my goal is to get down to twice the number that you use. If I could get down to that, I'd feel like I was doing pretty well. So at this point, listeners are probably going. Oh yes, yes. Why? The yeah. Why? The rule like, is that the, the bad rule is never use the word was, which was in my own mind. I was thinking, oh, every time I use the word was, it's passive voice, and and then you know sometimes it's not passive voice. Sometimes it just has to be there, and those are you know those are the ones that you use. I just tend to go passive voice all the time. Yeah, and and see in my my list of of cheats. I do have actual rules uh, that incorporate the word was, hunt them down, replace them. But it's not was standing by itself because was is one of those words that the, the English language doesn't work if you don't use it. What I'm eliminating, and, and this will show up in, the, in the, the Hack the Craft program, are that was that were because that was if you go back and you if you search through your your document and you look for those two words together you find that many times you can delete them completely and the sentence still reads as it should they're filler words and so, sometimes they're so our ears are so trained to expect them to be there that even if the sentence is 100% grammatically correct without them Copy editors will still try and put them back in. Hmm. So, um, yeah, there are, there are some. And, and the, the reason why I'm hunting them down and trying to replace them is because of the passive voice. And so. she actually, in, in, in Anne's blog post, she uses the term past progressive, which is apparently some sort of an Eng English language thing that I don't understand at all. But she gives an example of it, and it makes perfect sense in the example. She gives, as an example of passive, the book was read by me. 
And then she gives an example of past progressive. I was reading the book when some idiot came in and told me the word was is taboo for writers. So in that circumstance, you need to you need to use the word was. Otherwise, um, there's no sense of timeline. Exactly. However, and this is when we go kind of further off into hack the craft territory. Do you spot a word in that? past progressive sentence that I would have highlighted and said, nope, nope, nobody, nope, nope on? When I was reading it, there was something that didn't feel right, but I don't see it now. The word when. Oh! Yes. And it's because this, when when we're writing um, and we're really trying to see something through the eyes of the character, beat by beat, moment by moment, as if they were in a first-person shooter game, Words like as, when, whatever, they are taking two, two separate things and making them happen simultaneously. And that works really great for some types of writing, but not when you're really trying to be in the moment. So I was reading a book when some idiot came in is a very easy way to write that sentence. It will work. There's nothing wrong with it. But if you want to take it a level further and go full immersion into that story, you've got to eliminate that when and eliminate the was reading and figure out how to make the whole thing tell the same exact thing without those words. And that search for the when is one of the things I do in my Hack the Craft series of reviews at the end of each scene now. And I, I can't believe I did not see that. So it, it really just comes down to how much time are you willing to invest in mm -hmm. it? Because um, for some people, the amount of time it would take to rewrite that sentence to be fully immersive is not worth it. And so it's, it's really a matter of, do you want to, or do you not want to, but that is a target word right there. Okay. And if you, if you do that, then you get rid of the was. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to skip to the last one now because we're getting short of time. And this, this is an interesting one. I wish it were true. Never read other writers while you're working on a novel or you'll write like them. Believe me, I have tried, and it doesn't work. The words out of my mouth, um, I, I almost just said the exact same thing that she wrote. I, I was about to say it, and I was like, oh, she already said that. We should be so lucky. And I was going to go, oh, you wish. <laughs> um, yes. Wow. Wouldn't it be great if that were the case? And we could just decide, oh, I want to write a book like Taylor. I want to write a book like Carl Hyacin and then just read a book and just do it. That'd be, that would be awesome. If, if only, you know. Um, there are times where even I can't write like me. <laughs> and I'm like, it just happened to me the other day where I was open, working on the opening part of a chapter, and I'm like, this is not working, this is not working, this is not working, what's wrong with it? What's, I just, you know, I, I was just frustrated, and I had to step away. I'm like, let me go goof off and go on Facebook or something. And while I was away, my brain went, ha, 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 and I realized that there was another part of the book that was trying to tell something similar to what I was doing, and it had been worded very, very well. And there was sort of a beat or a pattern rhythm to it. And I was like, oh, I can take that exact sentence and just change some of the words out so that it follows the same rhythm. And then it'll sort of 
create a continuity and a flow to the the mental process, but I can just um, like update it and make it current to this different topic that I'm referring to. I basically plagiarized myself, and it worked. And so, uh, yeah. If <laughs> my point is, yeah, read all the books you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm thankful for that because. I like to read. All right, that that is it for this week's show. We went a little bit long, so I apologize for that. But this was this was a fun show, uh, starting with purple hair, winding up with plagiarizing yourself. Not bad for an episode of the Taylor Stevens Show. Uh, <laughs> Pretty call, typical, actually. <laughs> call to call to action. Um, let's let's do this. If 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 you've heard stupid rules that we didn't cover here. Post them in the Taylor Stevens fan club group because it would be fun for all of us to to hear those and, and maybe debate debate the validity of some of those rules. It's 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 kind of a fun thing. Uh, Taylor, what are we going to talk about next week? I I know that you already know. You you mentioned it prior to our recording. I want to talk about beta readers and the the pros and the cons and when and why and and all of that because i get a lot of questions about you know am i good enough how do i find out can you read my stuff can you tell me if this works that type of stuff okay all right so we will talk about that next week thank you all for listening taylor welcome back to your desk and away from the pool and the beauty salon and all the things you've been doing and uh, you're off to thriller fest here like pretty soon right yeah this is like i'm at my desk oh my god i'm at my desk bye um hopefully it'll settle down in a few weeks <laughs> thank you guys for being with us hope to be with you again next week <laughs>